All right. If you're like me, probably like a lot of people, you love binging docu-series or shows on Netflix. Uh, streaming has become really popular. And especially streaming docu-series about cults have become incredibly popular. There's something about watching and viewing people kind of getting lost. What's their mindset of being involved in fanatical organizations? Today on Dr. D's Social Network, our guest is Ronit Plank. And Ronit has a very special connection to what I just talked about. Her mother actually left the family and joined the Bhagwan's cult that is prominently featured in the Netflix docuseries Wild Wild Country. I have seen this and it is mind-blowing and I highly recommend for you to watch it. But But what's even more interesting is getting the inside perspective, the child perspective for Ronit as she watched her mother leave the family and go join this cult and then understanding from her point of view how that changed her childhood and the healing that has happened between her and her mother. So I encourage you to enjoy this podcast episode. Sit down, relax, and check out my conversation with Ronit Plank. In the place to be with Ronit Plank, fine glass plank, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've dropped the middle name lately, but yeah. She dropped the middle name. You know, it's, <laughs> it's just Ronit Plank. And uh, I am so happy you're here with me to have a great discussion. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. D. I'm really happy to be here. Well, I am glad you're here. And I came across your profile somewhere. I meet so many people, but I saw what you talk about and kind of the whole thing where uh, I believe your mother went off with a couple of different gurus or one or two. One, I got got to get into this because I've seen Wild Wild Country and I believe this is part of your journey, correct? Yeah. That whole thing. So take us back. Let's jump into (laughs) something here related to all this (laughs) Are you sure you're ready for this? I'm ready. I've been ready. I got a lady who escaped the doomsday cult next week. So we're, we're, we're oh, rolling. Yeah. yeah, I'm nothing compared to that. I'm like, yeah, I wasn't crazy. on the cult myself. But um, yeah, so I'll start. But please let me know if you need me to pan out a little bit and stop with the, the zooming in. Because if I'm going too detailed, let me know. No, let's um, go deep. <laughs> yeah, so I was born in Israel. I'm uh, I'm from New Yorker Jewish parents, and they went to Israel to live on a kibbutz, which is a kind of socialist work farm. Some people have heard of them, some people haven't, and they were like idealistic. Uh, the my parents were idealistic, and kibbutzim, which is the plural of kibbutz, is idealistic. Um, you kind of don't have to worry about uh, getting a job off the kibbutz, at least back in the late 60s and 70s, this was the case. They've become more capitalist in model now, but um, you didn't pay rent. You worked on the land, or you worked in the kitchen, or you worked in the factory for the kibbutz, and you had a place to live, and you had a children's house to raise your children. And so you would see your children like four, three to four hours a day, maybe two hours a day in the afternoons. But the rest of the time, your children stayed in the children's house with 
carers, like minders, and they slept there and they ate their meals with their friends and you didn't see your kids except for these concentrated hours in the afternoon, which I think the kibbutz model felt was actually better than the city life for a lot of parents, especially fathers who worked all day, came home and didn't even get to see their kids. Um, so this afternoon time was like, let's have tea, let's have snacks, let's talk and and play with our children. So my first four years were like amazing. I had no idea how amazing it was because I took it for granted. And I feel, and I wrote this in my memoir, if you can take your childhood for granted, you're winning. Like I just, right. You're winning in the childhood department. So I loved it. I could walk home from the children's house at the age of three, all by myself, you know, nothing was wrong. It was all safe. But anyway, my parents decided to move back to the States. Uh, My dad went to grad school in Washington State, University of Washington. My parents' marriage began to crumble. There had already been cracks and they married young and they were really not well matched at all. And then um, they got divorced. My father moved to the East Coast and left my mom, me and my younger sister in Seattle which is kind of hard because she had no family or friends around. Mm -hmm. And I always like to point out that my father left the family first. For years, I grew up feeling, because my dad ended up raising me and my sister, but for years, the narrative in my head was my mom left, my mom left. But, you know, my dad left first. And, you know, if my mom had decided not to join a cult and go to India and drop us off with him a year later, I really don't know when we would have seen him again. Mm. Um, so we lived with my mom. It was a really hard time for her. We were on welfare and she really tried to make ends meet and she was growing depressed. She was probably about 30 at this point and she really was lost and, uh, had never really found herself, which goes back to sort of the family of origin. I feel really strongly that, you know, we are who we are because of where we came from, but then of course, our work as adults is to figure out how we want to proceed, right? We don't have to be what we were but what we experienced made us. And so my mom had only certain resources available. So she said she's going to follow this guru and her friend introduced her to his teachings. His name was Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. And you are one of the few people who right off the top of the conversation has watched Wild Wild Country and knows who he is. I know. I've seen so many documentaries about this and the ashram and the whole thing in India, I was like, yeah. this is crazy. <laughs> well, it's so different, right? Like, and, and there were so many different cults and spiritual movements going on at this time. I mean, there's so many documentaries about this kind of thing. But, you know, it's really true that when people are lost or, I mean, there's so many reasons for it. And there are many books on cults and things like that. But my mom was searching for something. And I've talked to her about this in present day. And she says who she is now, she would never have done that. She never, she can't even imagine. She's like, even 10 years ago, I wouldn't have done that. But back then she was searching for something and she was lost. And so my, um, she started bringing my sister and I, who was, she was three, my sister and I was about six, to meditations at the ashram, like the center in Seattle. It was the Rajneeshi Center on Capitol Hill. And so we would just be sitting there on these couches watching these adults like meditate to this strange man's voice. <laughs> and it was like so boring. I can't even tell you. I mean, I remember, oh yeah, like what the heck, you know, looking at your mom sitting on the floor cross-legged and like surrounded by people in flowy clothes and just waiting for it to be done. Um, but so anyway, she said, you know, can you take the kids for the summer? I want to go to India. And my dad said, no, there's really no room for this, uh, for us. Like he was living in the projects in New York, um, in Newark, New Jersey, 
with his girlfriend and her two daughters in a tiny apartment. And he's like, I can't take the girls. But finally, my mom said, look, we're good. You know, I have to go to India. I need to go. And so I'm going to put them up in like a foster care situation if you don't take them. And so he said, okay, I'll take them. <laughs> so she dropped oh. us off. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, I'm giving you the Cliff's Notes version. No, believe it or is, not. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's all in the memoir, but so she drops us off and my memoir actually begins at the airport in, at Newark airport when she's saying goodbye to us because we hadn't seen our father in a year. So I was really excited to see him, but it was completely mixed. The whole experience was like the swirling mix of feelings because she was leaving. And I think I knew that I knew that she was leaving, but I didn't know it. I was six. So my dad takes our hands and we go to this apartment with these girls we don't know and this new woman in our lives. And that was a really hard transition for both me and my sister. But I think it was harder for me because she was adorable and soft and cuddly and three and a half. And I was prickly and pissed off. You know, I was like, where's my mom? Who are these ladies? You know, and why aren't they happy to see me? <laughs> so, yeah. And plus, like, you know, my whole experience up until that point with my father prior to his leaving had been I was his like apple of his eye. I was the oldest. I was his partner in crime and there was no room, you know, it was really cramped physically and like emotionally. And then my mom, she kept saying she'd come back and then she did not come back after the summer. So my dad hustled us into, well, hustled me into second grade registration. And I started going to school there in Newark, New Jersey. And we spent about a year there before my mom ended up coming back. And Strangely, like I don't know that she would have come back had her mother not been dying from breast cancer. Uh, like she came finally because her mom was really ill and she was needed. She, my mom has two siblings, but my mom was needed. And I really don't know if she would have come back when she did otherwise, you know? Did you talk to so, her at all when she was gone in India? Like, it's a good question. Yeah. You know, there were promises, it's a little vague, but there were promises like, I'll call you or, you know, I'll call you on this day. And there, I do remember waiting by the phone on a Saturday, you know, because she was supposed to call that day and the family wanting to go out and do errands. And I, I stayed with the one daughter who was old enough and was observing the Jewish Shabbat, you know, and not going out and doing anything. And I stayed with her waiting for my mom to call and my mom did not call so there was a lot of those highs and lows, those wishing and not coming true feelings, those this will change soon feelings and then it doesn't change, you know, like which kind of shaped me because I think it really, it kind of carved into my life this way of feeling about intimate relationships and, you know, what, what love or what passion means, what, what wanting someone means is also you're not going to get them and they may disappoint you, you know? Yeah, most definitely. Yeah. So um, she came back and we started seeing her every other weekend. Um, and, you know, when she came back, she had like big, big fluffy hair and she had a nose ring and she had, she looked beautiful in so many ways because she was sort of transformed. She had big flowy, like genie pants on. And as you know, from wild, wild country, the colors were sunset colors. So yes. Yeah, she had this black beaded mala with the picture, a black and white picture of Bhagwan at the bottom. And, you know, it, it was like she was my mom, but she was different. And 
and and that feeling you have as a kid and and maybe as a parent people can understand the feeling you have for your child when you're so happy to see them and the feeling that a kid has when they know their parent is so happy to see them i just didn't there was like something not totally clicking like mm-hmm. i thought everything was going to be fine once she was back right but it wasn't like that it wasn't like an aha or a click there was something not quite right and i think I don't know that she was happy to be back. I don't think she was happy to be back. It must have been a rude awakening to come back from an ashram and life with all these people following this leader to like smelly Newark in the summer. Can you imagine that? I mean, like, and then maybe she, so she never really went to the Oregon place either, or did she? She did because- She did? um, Oh, yeah. She went again. So- Whoa. I thought you were like, I thought you were like baiting me with a question like, go on. But you actually didn't know that she did. Yeah. So I didn't we had know. A- <laughs> I thought she just came back and was your mom. Like, she's like. No. no, no, no. Nothing is simple or easy with this family. Like, it's all a little more complicated. Man. And I, and I don't have the, you know, certainly most families are complicated. And I don't mean to say that mine was special in this way, but we definitely had a strange upbringing. And so my father, realizing my mom was not ready to take us, moved us out of that apartment in Newark. And we went to our very own apartment in Flushing, Queens. Have you ever been to New York? I have. Well, my family's yeah. from there. Yeah. Oh, okay, great. Um, So we were in, we moved to Queens and, you know, this was like, whoa, we got a three bedroom apartment and, you know, two bathrooms for the three of us. And it had an outdoor pool and it was not fancy. Let me be clear. It was not fancy, but compared to where I was, it was amazing. You're moving I mean, on was, up. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Moving on up. Like <laughs> we still had cockroaches. We still had to close our, like close our eyes when we turned on the lights. So we would see them. We wouldn't see them scatter when, you know, it was still like yuck, yucky that way. But I had a room with my sister instead of these other two girls and a tiny room with four girls. Right. So, and we were also happy because we were moving out with our father and my dad did such a good job of making us feel special and happy to be with him that he was sort of taking us into this new section of our life together. So it was fun. It was super fun to pick out furniture and to like, Mm -hmm. you know, put posters of kittens on our walls. (laughs) Like all that stuff was super fun. And um, we started seeing our mom every other weekend and things seemed sort of stable. I started school. I started third grade. I loved my teacher. I loved my classmates. I felt so settled um, and happy, you know, um, really happy. And I did good in school. I did well in school. My sister seemed okay. Um, And things were pretty okay for a while. My dad started dating women, which was strange. Um, My mom dated men, which was strange. But my mom cut her hair and she got makeup on and nice clothes and got a job. And it seemed like, okay. And she had a studio apartment in the city and it was fun to see her. And then when I was about 12, this woman came to dinner with me and my mom and my sister, and it was a hot summer. It was like a June night in Manhattan. And the woman to me seemed a little weird, like something seemed weird about her. And I found out after that dinner that she knew about Rajneesh and she told my mom, she met her at some self-actualization course, um, that, you know, he had an ashram now in Oregon, in Antelope, Oregon, and she should go check it out. And I, I was like, you know, my antenna, (laughs) my antenna were like super strong antenna. I could always tell when someone was weird or strange or like not good for me or my family. And it was sort of like, uh uh-huh, I knew it. And so my mom left when I went to summer camp, sleepaway summer camp, me and my sister went to this sleepaway, no frills, upstate New York, Jewish camp. And we got a letter while we were at camp saying, 
you know, I think I'm going to stay past the two weeks I said I was going to stay. And um, she ended up not coming back again. And Mm -hmm. so that was really hard. Um, My sister and I read those, you know, those cards that she sent us. um, And we just were like crying, you know, because I was... I was going to be 13. My bat mitzvah was coming up, which is a Jewish coming of age uh, tradition ceremony. And my mom did not make it back for that. That was in October of that year. Um, and I believe that was 1985. And that would be the last year that the ashram in Antelope, Oregon, which is heavily depicted in Wild Wild Country, yes. was in operation. Because then she missed my bat mitzvah. It was the beginning of my eighth grade year. And my mom, the ranch closed because... Bhagwan fled and his followers had nothing going on anymore. And, you know, buses started shipping out all these Rajneeshis out of there. And my mom came to New York and stayed with us what was supposed to be for a couple of days. But then she and my mom, she and my dad fought really badly. My dad really couldn't contain his anger anymore. And they had a huge fight in front of us and, um, you know, really bad words. And he was so furious, you know, that she could just fly into our house and come back like this fairy, this like, you know, special fairy tale mom. And we would love her, but he'd been in charge of us for so many years and she'd hurt us, but we still loved her. And I think it just boiled over for him. You know, he just, he said she could stay with us because she had nowhere to go. But I think when she was actually there and we were fawning over her and so happy to see her, he just couldn't take it. Yeah. You know, it was just like too much for him. Um, he'd been holding down the fort for so long. And so she left. She packed up and went to Seattle. And um, we never lived with her again. And it was ironic because I should have mentioned this before. I had always wanted to go back and live with her in Seattle. And prior to her leaving for the second time, she had started looking at apartments with me and my sister in New York, thinking she would take us. And when she left this second time, it was like an added blow. And I was you know, I just really, that was it for me. I think I was in adolescence. I was coming of age. My mom was now officially gone with no hope of coming back. I really wasn't doing well. I was really down. You know, it was really hard times. Yeah, I can only imagine. I mean, I actually, because because I've like, I've seen that uh, documentary several times. And I can imagine thinking about like, actually seeing my mom there, like on the show, mm. potentially. Mm. Or like seeing Bhagwan drive down there with his Rolls Royces and the pedals mm-hmm. and that your mom may be out there throwing pedals. And oh, yeah. Waiting for Do you ever think about that stuff? Oh, yeah. Well, actually, I wrote a piece about it. So I've written, I've written short pieces about this before I wrote the memoir. And one piece is in the Atlantic. And that is the the toll, the overlooked toll on families. It's basically like, where are all the children in this? And the other one was for the rumpus. And it was called, I can't shake the guru Bhagwan. And everyone can kind of find this on my website, but their links. But I did watch that series with bated breath. I mean, my husband and I, he sat down with me. He understood what it was going to be like. I cuddled under like a blanket. Mm-hmm. I had like a notepad near me because I think there are six episodes to that series, yeah. Wild Wild Country. And I mean, I really was looking for my mom. I thought, am I going to see her in this footage? Because, you know, it's one thing for something to have happened to your family, but it's it's so complicated when it's for the masses to like indulge on on an entertainment level. And also I like wanted to see her and see a glimpse of what she was like there. And yes. at the same time, I did not want to see her at all. 
Wow. Like, have you ever had the conversation with her? Like that she opened up about her time there and what that was like? Have you guys had a heart to heart about that? You know, we have had multiple conversations about this and, I remember years ago, um, maybe six, seven years ago, my kids were small and we had lunch. I took her out to lunch. She lives in Seattle. And so we live really near each other and we're, we have a relationship, but I think it got deeper recently. And, you know, she said something about how Bhagwan felt that children hindered your path to enlightenment. Hmm. And she just said it sort of like off the cuff, you know, she just said it like pretty casually. And I sort of was just stunned because I, I didn't know that. I, I don't know. I didn't know that he specifically had said that. Yeah. And and as I did, you know, and, and also didn't understand like why she could say it so lightly. And we've, and when we talked about it for years going ahead in my life, I was more confrontational about it. I was pretty angry. You know, we saw each other and I loved her and I never really broke off a relationship with her because I always felt like, why would I suffer again by not being having her in my life. And I had a therapist in my twenties who said, you must be furious. You know, you must be really angry at her in my twenties. And I really could not find that anger. I could not find it. I searched myself for it, but it just didn't appear the way that I think people thought I should have. I felt like, like maybe in a way I was a pushover taking what I could get, you know, like I'll take whatever I can get with her. But that also marked an earlier part of my life and development emotionally because, you know, I had trouble in relationships, as you can imagine. I mean, I I wasn't even being authentically myself in my marriage. I mean, I was, but I wasn't, right? But and what so was that after like? I, what was well, that manifesting itself as? I think I just was afraid to be fully vulnerable. I think I I was a good mom. My my sister and I are good parents, and I I don't know how much of that is innate and how much of that is what we learned from my father, because my father really was nurturing. There were problems in our relationship also, but my dad was like instilled confidence in us and loved us so much. Right. With him, it was more for me about how do I get space from this guy? You know, how do I differentiate and stop being the partner in the relationship? Like, how can I just be a daughter? And that was something I had to feel my way through. And also, so with my mom, I have this relationship juxtaposition, right? As an adult, I can't get enough of one person, but I am getting too much of another. So I could like end up feeling swallowed in an intimate relationship, but I could also feel scared that I would lose that person. So it was really like a push pull, yeah, you know? And I don't think I could be like still and just allow something to wash over me emotionally. And so I did a lot of work. I mean, I had to go deeper than I thought I needed. I thought I'd done all this work in therapy, but I had to kind of crack the facade and like really fall apart, you know, emotionally to, and I, and I post a lot about this on my Instagram and on Facebook because I have this podcast where I'm interviewing people about these lot, these moments in their lives. And I have this memoir I wrote about coming to grips with the truth about myself and like our relationships. And I think that's helped me. Like, I don't think unless you've seen the truth about your life and try to work through it and understand where your shortcomings are and your vulnerabilities and your armor, I just don't think you can live the way you could live otherwise. Like, I just feel like I'm, I'm such a different person because of that. And I'm by no means done working. I find myself doing these things if I don't pay attention, but I feel like there are two kinds of people in the world, the people who have like faced these things and are aware of them and trying to work through and people who are not yet ready to do that. Right. And like, and it doesn't, there's no judgment. It's just where you are, you know? And, 
And I think that the people that I seem to be communicating with and finding on Instagram and finding to read my stuff and to listen to the podcast are people who are on that journey to try to figure it out, right? And so, and you don't have to figure it out. By all means, you don't. You could just continue and it's fine. What you don't know, you don't know. But once you realize what you could be and how you can live your life, it's such an eye-opening thing. It's so different. And I try really hard to stay authentic and be like, oh, I'm pulling that crap about myself again. Or, oh, that was pretty defensive. Like, what's wrong? What's going on with me? Like, why am I feeling so fear-based here? But in terms of my mom, I just went on a total rabbit down a rabbit hole. But to answer <laughs> your question, as I told you, I can talk. It's I okay. can talk. But I feel so good. good talking with you because you're asking such great questions too. Thank you. Um, mm-hmm. um, so in terms of my mom, I think a couple of years ago, I kind of put down my weapons with her. I think I, think I just... I, Here's the thing about parents, like, I really feel that we always want them to be a certain way and we get disappointed. We can get disappointed when they are not heroic the way we want them to be. Uh, and, yes. you know, like, like, why can't you just be this person I put in my head that you are? You know, why can't you be that way? And I would get disappointed if she let me down. And then I had to say like, but this is who she is. You know, why are you surprised? So it's, it's complicated because as I said, I was really combative for a while and then about a year ago, my mom and I, before the pandemic, we were talking together and I had this feeling, she, the book was written, but she hadn't read it yet. And um, I don't know, I had this feeling we were going somewhere in our conversation that we had never been. So I asked her if I could record it. And she said, okay, because I mean, by now my mom and dad are so used to like me with my silly recording because <laughs> I, I feel like I have a bad memory and I, I want to get things verbatim. And you know, she, she admitted that she ran away. She said, I ran away, you know, like she admitted it for the first time. How did and that make you I feel when she said that? I was like, oh my God, like I, she said it. Like she, I was stunned because all my life, I feel like I'd wanted her to say something that admitted or reconciled, like that, like that would make me feel better. Right. And I didn't know my sister and I have talked about this. I didn't know if it was, I'm sorry, or I never should have done that. Or I can't believe I did that. We didn't know what shape that would take. Um, but when she admitted that she ran away, that was so powerful for me. I felt like she understood at least part of what she had done and it made me feel like soft and tender toward her. It didn't make me mad. I felt like I, I, it's so complicated to like, you know, maybe boil down to like a one reaction, but, um, I felt so pleased that she was able to say it. And I, I actually, she cried in that conversation because, you know, she, there's so much she's sorry for and yeah. it doesn't take away what happened. And, and I'm really sorry about what happened because now that I'm raising my children, like, you know, my daughter is passing the age already. She's 15 where the most hurtful things happen for me. But, you know, my parents are sorry. Like they, they screwed up and they both know it. Like my dad is sorry. And like, he's like, I never should have left Seattle. I don't know why I did that, you know? And so, cause I've shown my family, my sister, my mom and my dad, the manuscript. Now I have a publisher for it, but before I, you know, like settle on the final draft, I sent it to them because I wanted to see if I'd made mistakes. I wanted to get their impact, like their, their input on it. I think it's important to share like intimate stuff with people before you publish it about them. <laughs> sure. Um, 
And, you know, I did fix some things date wise and I did, I did like correct some things and I felt scared to share it with them, but I feel like I may not have their exact blessing, but I feel like they, they understand what I'm saying and they get it, you know, and they're not mad about it. I mean, no one wants to be written about. I don't think like no one wants to see themselves as a character in someone's memoir. Right. But, um, I think that, you know, there's been healing all around because, um, the story of what happens to us and then the story we tell ourselves and then the story that people tell about what happened to us, they're all very different. And I think that it's important to get your story down the way that you remember it and how it affected you because, you know, nobody else is going to remember it that way. Yeah. It makes me think of, um, I had this guest on who her whole, kind of being in a business is about personal myth-making and creating your memoir. And it just mm. made me think of that and the things you remember, what are the myths you tell about yourself and things of that nature. But I also wanted to explore was forgiveness a part of this aspect mm. in your relationship with your mom? Yeah. You know, it's, it's something I've been thinking a lot about because people ask, they, they really ask about that. And, um, you know, I don't, so I'm Jewish, but I, you know, I'm like a pretty reformed Jew. I don't like go to temple all the time, but I'm culturally Jewish. And I was bat mitzvahed and I have taught Hebrew at a Hebrew school. So like I have an orientation to Judaism, but I don't, I don't know what my stance is on forgiveness. And I know that forgiveness can play a really big role in certain religion. And I guess like what's, I'm still kind of teasing out acceptance versus forgiveness versus like, I also feel, and I'd love to hear, you know, what, what your opinion of it is too. Like, I think part of my healing on this became that I think part of it, and I'm still working it out is that I know that I don't know that my mom or dad could have done better the way, I mean, yes, of course they could have done better, but they, they aren't who they are now. Like, you know, they only had the tools to do what they did, or they made these choices then, but they wouldn't make them again. Right. And so that's part of the healing there and the forgiveness. And also, and this is really important for me in my relationships to realize their leaving did not mean something was wrong with me. Their leaving had everything to do with them. Yes. And that, that is, that's might sound really obvious to people who have good families or who, who are really awesome parents, but it took me a really long time to realize like it wasn't about me. And that is a crazy thing to think that I had to be 30 or 40 or whatever years old to understand that. Um, it doesn't wipe all the hurt away. Of course, I'm still sad about certain things, but like, you know, I mean, I remember once years ago telling someone, I don't know why my mom left. We were good kids. And they looked at me like, what are you talking about? Like it has, nothing to do with whether you were good kids. And that was a revelation. It is a revelation. I think we often, you said something about parents, like wanting them to be who, who we want them to be. And I think there's, I got in this conversation the other day, Ronit, about, you know, who, who are these people that raise us? Like how much <laughs> of them do we actually know about? Like if you really examine the people that raise you or biologically your parents or not, you know, or you've been fostered or adopted, who, who are these people? And do they reveal themselves to you throughout their lives or do they keep 
who they are from you mm -hmm. uh, in some weird way. And, I th and, and my observation has been that I feel a lot of parents don't reveal who they are to their children, that they keep themselves like this version of me is my parental version of me. Mm -hmm. Well, you don't really know a lot about the other parts of me for yeah. that. And yes. I feel like that is a huge divide between kids and parents. And I made it my, my mission for my daughter to know who I am fully as a child. And she understands that this is who I am. I gave you everything. I brought everything that is me. No secrets. This is me. Take me from me for mm. that. Now, obviously, her consciousness and how she thinks as a child and how she interprets that might change over time. But I think there's a disconnect. And it sounds like, like your mom especially focusing on that. She was just trying to find herself. She's trying oh, to figure yeah. out like, who am I? And how do I be committed to something that helps me grow? And you're, they're right. That had, what did that, in a weird way, that had nothing to do with you. But it's hard because it had a lot to do with you too, because you're her daughter. Exactly. You know? That's hard. No, I mean, it is hard. It's a, it's a, it's a like, you have to kind of like stand up a back from it a little bit. Like yeah. you have to be able to sort of take a bird's eye view. You're like, you're collecting the information in sort of a logical way. And it, it's, you can't on, you can't like unmix the pain from yeah. the story, right? You can't like analyze it that way. And it's not like I consciously do, but it's sort of this, I'd say it's like a smoothie. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's like you just put it all in there and like different, different sips are going to come out different. Like you're going to get a little yeah. Like, you know, sometimes you feel more hurt and you're like, that was really hard. And sometimes you like really have it logically. And like, sometimes you, you're really angry about it. And sometimes you're like, it doesn't matter. I'm fine. But yeah. I think that, um, you know, I agree with you about the parent thing. And I think, I wonder how much of it is generational as well. I mean, I think yes. some of it is probably your family culture. Like, like we're very chatty in my family and I think we're pretty, you know, transparent with our kids. I'm sure there's some mystery around us that they wonder about, but in general, we're very like, you know, chatty, but I think that some of that, my father and my mom, you know, definitely didn't share a lot. And I don't know how much of that was the era, but also I do think kids, and this is in my book too. I really think that kids will fill in with their own information, whether it's made up or true with the <laughs> yes. silences. So if you, if, you know, in my family, like we, you know, I remember when my kids were in preschool, the teachers would say, oh, you can tell your kid if they've hurt your feelings. You can say that really hurt my feelings. I wish you wouldn't say that. And I was like, what? You can tell <laughs> your kid that? Like, that's crazy. <laughs> like, you're not supposed to be impenetrable. Like what? Yeah. And like my dad never said that stuff ever. You know, he was just like angry or great. And so, <laughs> I think, you know, I'm serious. Like, you know, that was the deal. And my mom, we never knew what was going on in her head. Never, never, never. And so when my mom was quiet, I filled in the gap with she's mad at me yes. or I'm annoying her. And the truth is I probably was annoying her a little bit. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to lie. I was probably a very like, you know, I was a very like personality forward person, but I, I, I was for a long time. And then I like started thinking, oh, I must be too much. I'm too big. I'm too loud. I'm too, <laughs> you know? And so, but I really think that my mom's quiet and my, any kind of quiet or unanswered, you know, questions that becomes something I think a kid can turn on themselves and assume things. I just interviewed a guest who was in prison for killing someone in a gang. He was a Vietnamese gang member and his, his episode is coming out, but he, 
thought that his father was furious at him for something because his father reprimanded him for not protecting his younger brother when his younger brother got beat up. And his father reprimanded him and said, you have to protect your brother. I'm disappointed in you. And he went on for the rest of his life thinking that his father was forever disappointed in him when for his father, it was finished. It was just that incident. Hmm. Yeah. So I, I do think the forgiveness piece, you know, that's something that I, I have to read more about because I am working on a piece about it to kind of answer this question. But yeah. the difference, like I think by the end of my memoir, I do have that scene with my mom almost verbatim. Like I said, I did, I did record her. <laughs> I'm like the most annoying daughter ever. Oh, you're crying. Can I, can I record this? Can I do this? <laughs> How about I record you crying? Okay. And then I'll put it in my book. But, um, you know, but my mom actually, you know, she thanked me. I know this sounds like I'm patting myself on the back, but after she read the manuscript, I think she, she told me she didn't know I felt that way about a lot of stuff. And, yeah. you know, I, she didn't know I missed her, which is, you know, of course, mind boggling, but also she said, <laughs> wow, I know it's strange, but wow. see, here's the other, this is the other thing. Right. And that's not to put it on me. Cause I have called her on that sometimes I'll, yeah. I'll say like, I feel like, but I think what she, her self-esteem was so low she had been emotionally abused by her own mother and maybe physically abused too. And like, mm. she didn't feel she mattered at all. Right. She felt that she might hurt me and my sister, which was part of the reason she left. She felt this anger coming up for her and really felt that we would do better with my father. Um, so she justified it, you know, like whatever it was, but she comes out better in the book than I think she thought she would, because I have this empathy about it and this, this kind of scope about it. My father was less pleased because I think he thought he was going to be the superhero in the book. Uh, yeah. And I, and yet it's more nuanced than that. Yeah. I, you know, it was fascinating. I, mm. I always think, feel like. You know, we're in this conversation about parents and children and essentially a lot of healing that has to take place between parents and children. I think it's pretty common, honestly. Mm -hmm. I think there's so much. I know so many people who are struggling with how they were raised, talking to their parents about it, the healing, the mystery behind who their parents really are. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and taking that with you into adulthood and still dealing with the mystery of it. Oh yeah. I mean, it's the co most complicated or complex relationship you have for Seriously. the majority, you know, for <laughs> most of your childhood and the lack of a parent is complicated too because the legacy of people who leave or, you know, people who are not available to you who are supposed to be raising you lasts forever. I mean, that it's like it's stunning and very frightening when you and it's also can be beautiful, but when you think about the influence a parent has or a caregiver has on their child. It's like awe-inspiring. It is. It really is. And it's, I wonder for you, like when you, obviously you've seen that documentary and, and maybe you've seen a bunch of other different ones and stuff. Do you ever think to yourself when you see maybe like an extremist group or a cult-based group, you think, I understand why people are trying to be in those things or maybe what the psyche is of a person sure. who is attracted I mean, to that? Yeah. I mean, 
I think it's interesting. A lot of the people who are attracted are really smart people. And some of them, like they're educated, they're smart. They they even have financial means, you know, because a lot of those places are asking for your money. Yeah. And I should mention that Bhagwan, you mentioned that that scene, you know, when he comes down the path in Wild Wild Country in his Rolls Royce and they throw flowers at him. You know that like he had over 90 Rolls Royces. Yeah, um, crazy amounts. Yeah. yeah. And and he would say, he twisted it. Like it's kind of hilarious because, you know, what are you doing? But he would say, well, it's sort of a mockery of how people love objects and material possessions. So I'm turning it on its head. But the truth of the matter is he had 90 something Rolls Royces. So, (laughs) you know, whatever you want to believe. But, you know, I think that I understand why people go like I get it. You know, um, I understand that people want belonging. And and the funny thing is, because of my experience, I never did dive wholly into something like that because I mean, I have been interested in lots of different kinds of like tarot readings and psychic readings. And I followed witchcraft Wicca for a little while in college. Like I, I, I mean, I went to Wicca meetings. I went to like these coven meetings to try to figure it out. And when it got too deep, when I was like, this is weird. There was this one event I went to. I went to this one event, which was just a giant gathering. And I don't mean weird, like dangerous or weird or spooky. I just mean like, you know, this guy was dancing around to represent like the stag God. And when he put on a pair of antlers and started dancing around in the big circle, I was like, I'm out. <laughs> like, you were like, this is the tipping point. <laughs> yeah, I was like, this is, I can't like, I believe in like nature, spirituality. And I believe in like, you know, I'm serious. Like I just told that story on this other uh, first time storytelling page, but it's really funny because and that's in my book too, because I was like, okay, I'm done. Like I, I want to believe in something higher than myself and I want to understand how to live my life. But because of my background with my mom following the guru and she also followed Est, which is the precursor to the forum. So there was this Werner, yeah, Werner Earhart. It was Earhart's uh, seminar training or something. And it was a self-improvement, self-actualization thing in the eighties. And my mom would bring us to those meetings too. Like she really never learned, you know, um, because you're trying to get better and you're trying to acknowledge your stuff and you're trying to like get it. It had all this jargon. And I remember rolling my eyes so hard. I was like 10 or 11. I was like, what is she doing with these people? Right. So my, can I curse on your show? Yeah. Or yeah. No? You can say anything my bullshit you want. Me- yeah. My bullshit meter was just like so strong, but I think it was strong. I don't know. Nature or nurture. Was it strong because you know, I didn't buy anything these people were ever selling or because I just was always like that. But for a Brooklyn, you know, my mom was from Brooklyn. Like she should have had some edge on her, but she yeah. really didn't. She's like, okay, okay, I'll right. do that. Okay. And so for me, whenever we get into too much group think, whenever, even when I took a yoga class in, when I was pregnant in LA with my first kid, I remember going to the studio that like they wore, um, head wraps. They wore sort of like yeah. turbans. They were like all these white people following this Swami uh, who, I'm serious, he was what a Swami. What is going on, man? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, my friend recommended it and I went. I was like, why are all you white people wearing these things? And like they they were selling his tea and they were talking about his stuff. And I was like, I'm out. <laughs> I was like, I'm out. Like, I'm not doing this. Like anytime you want me to do something in a group think way, forget it. I'm out. This is strange. Have you, had you been watching the, uh, 
I think it's like a nine-part series called The Vow about the oh Nexium. You're talking my language. My oh husband my is gosh. so funny because I'm up to episode seven. And so there yes. you go. Like I'm totally intrigued. And my husband, he's like, eh, he watched a little bit. He's like, I'm not, I'm not that interested. And he left. And while I think they could have, I mean, my personal opinion as an editor of my own podcast is that they probably could have cut it down to seven episodes. But Agreed. I understand they seven or six, right? Too much, too much. But like, you know, you're watching it. I'm watching it and I'm sort of, I'm fascinated, but there is that inner sneer because I, you know, I, t- I'm telling you, I'm like, I'm like garlic with a vampire, like get away from me. Like I, you can not- smell it, man. <laughs> I'm just like, I am not. Yeah. And so you're watching it and you're like, God, you know, because these, these gurus, I mean, I want to, you know, I really, here is a, here is a, um, challenge for your listeners. Please find me, write to me. If you find the organization that is not asking you for money, sex, dominance or control over your life. And then maybe I will believe that they have good intentions because there's always a catch. Always. And I think that these people might have really good ideas, but, uh, you know, to begin with, maybe they have good ideas, but they get, they become megalomaniacs and they want control over people. And, you know, Bhagwan, that guy has all these books of his lectures. And like, I quote some of them just a little bit in my book, because I certainly don't want to, you know, have his foundation or anything make money off of this at all. But he, it's just like, blah, 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 blah. Toward the end of his stay in Oregon, he was sucking nitrous, what is it? Nitrous oxide from um, like a dentist chair situation. And he would just kind of like babble on and on. And people were like typing out everything he said, like, Oh God, this is like godly words. And I'm like, wake up people. Wake (laughs) Wake up, man. You know, but I understand, but I also find, I understand and I have such um, empathy for wanting to find yourself. And, you know, something that I noticed when I was writing the memoir was like, you know, those people, when the ranch broke up in Oregon, when the buses pulled away with all of them and their new home that they'd built that they thought they would last on forever was gone. And now it's like a Christian youth camp, actually, that whole property. What? But um, yeah, it's a Young Life Christian <laughs> wow. camp now. Yeah, like it was taken over. So that's kind of funny. But these people lost their homes and they lost their guru. They lost their master. They lost this thing they envisioned would be their home forever. And, you know, I at the same time lost mine. Like I lost my mom. I lost my home. They lost their guru. They lost their home. Like, you know, nothing good came of that. That's a, that's, it's weird. It's like, you see this and you're like, how do people get into this? Like, how do you fall for that? But it's, you know, if you're, you're if you're on kind of like you're searching, you, you're yeah. on shaky ground with stuff, you, it's easy to see how community in any form yes. that feels like a bunch of people love you or want to be a part of you. And the yes. strange part is like, you're right there. Initially, a lot of times you're like, this could be good. Like, that whole thing with the vow, the first episode is all like, maybe this wasn't so bad. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I think that's really smart. You know, it's important to, I think it is good to portray what people could have seen in it. And, you know, and I, and I try not to disparage people's beliefs. And I know I'm being a little snarky about, I'm being snotty for sure about Bhagwan stuff because he turned his name into Osho and people still follow his teachings. And when people post his stuff, I'm like, like for years when I would see his face on a book cover in my mom's studio apartment, I'd just be like, get that guy away from me. But I 
but I want to say, you know, if you follow someone like that and you don't hurt anyone and you don't leave kids and you don't like let your kids run wild on an ashram unattended, you know, more power to you. Like, go ahead, go figure it out. But the thing is, they became dangerous to the residents of in Oregon. I mean, they were yes. poisoning salad bars. It was the biggest bioterror attack on U.S. soil. Like they hospitalized so many people because they were trying to take control of the vote. And like, you know, that's the thing about these these, these cults or these organizations with coercive thinking, where are the kids in this? And if you talk to people, usually the kids are not treated the way they would be treated in a nuclear family. Yeah. It's, it's mind blowing. Like I was just actually, cause I like watching these shows. I'm interested Me in how too. people think Me and stuff, too. you know, and that's, that's my doctorate's behavior modification and all this. Oh, so cool. I very interested and I was like telling one of my clients who hasn't watched a lot of these things, I said, watch Wild Wild Country literally before we did this. Like, you got to watch this. Crazy. <laughs> and watch Holy Hell because that one's crazy. Like I really crazy. I think I crazy. saw that one too. The dude in the bikini, like in yes, the, the, the Speedo. That. Oh He's my gosh, my friend told me to see that. I was like, what is happening? It's nuts. It's so weird. But then, you know, it's more of a, it speaks to the vulnerability of people and how much yes. they want to believe in something. And then- you know, that's really makes me sad, but not in a patronizing way. It makes, it makes me sorry that people are so willing to give over themselves. But of course, if you don't have much of yourself and you don't know who you are, that you're so vulnerable, right? Yeah. You'll follow a dude in the speedo. I mean, exactly. I mean, that, that was so weird. I, it's so funny that you like those things too, because I'm sort of like, it's kind of like watching a car wreck, you know, like I'm, I'm kind of like, I have the Schadenfreude. Is it Schadenfreude? I say that wrong all the time. I'm not a true crime person. I'm a cult watching. (laughs) Well, and also when you were watching wild, wild country, did you like innately have any thoughts about, Hey, where are the kids? Or did that not occur to you? I'm just curious. No, it occurred to me. It, It, it definitely occurred to me. And then like when it got to like, actually what I thought, like the whole thing when they were in India, I was like, this doesn't seem that bad. Right. This doesn't, you know, like it seems like kind of how they've contrasted like the Nexium group, like in the beginning, like this doesn't seem that bad. It's kind of a self-help. People are getting better. Blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. And then it always turns into like this always this crazy guru who be like ends up having sex with all the yes. members or they're stealing money or doing something. And the strangest thing is they get like really popular people, like yes. famous people who and then so because I think it blows our mindset of like what we think of celebrity is. And we go, you put these people on pedestals, you realize they're just as fallible as anybody else. Yes. And, and also yes. even more because they live in a very warped reality, you know. Yes. And they do create this power system. And I mean, something that I don't think Wild Wild Country touched on, but I, I got in some of my reading because I have all these books on cults and gurus and Bhagwan, is that he had these energy darshans, these like these special energy prayer, like they're like darshans is some sort of energy adjustment. And I'm probably saying it wrong, but in, in the practice and like he would pick out women with especially large breasts to be in these groups for Bhagwan, like in India, like he you know, he wasn't some like, you know, asexual guy, like there yeah. was stuff going on, you know, and actually I forgot to tell you the most important part, which I think, you know, but it wasn't until I was like, like, like five years ago that I realized because a therapist told me this, that, that, that Bhagwan was known as the sex guru. What? Yeah. And like, no one pointed that out to me. Thank God. I mean, my mom followed the sex guru and she says that that stuff wasn't happening when she was in India. She said she didn't see the kids being taken care of poorly because 
I wondered, like, if she saw these kids, was she like, oh, I wonder what my daughter's doing right now? Yeah. <laughs> like, hmm, I wonder what Ronit's doing right now, my daughter. Yeah. But I don't think she did. But, like, you know, there was stuff happening. Like, people, you know, and so when I found that out, I was really surprised because it is a really singular experience to consume something that's for entertainment, a docuseries, and then have a direct relationship to your own life. That's a strange thing. And I think when you watch The Vow, and not not so much The Vow, but I remember when I watched um, Waco, which is a dramatization. Yeah, yeah. Of, did that you watch that one? Yeah, that was amazing. I remember thinking, how do all those people who were directly affected by that feel about this this you know drama in, encapsulating their experience because you kind of get angry, which is why I wrote that piece for the Atlantic. I was sort of like, like everyone's consuming this thing, but like this thing had a real effect on people. Most definitely. Yeah. I mean, I could talk to you about this for days. Honestly, I'm like, Me we're too. like totally into the same thing. <laughs> I know we're this. like peace in the pot. We're like, oh my god, did you watch this? Did you watch that? I'm like, uh, we'll have to pick this people- up. Yeah, we'll have to pick it up because I've never met another person who watched Holy oh, Hell no, no. except for I, I've watched no, no, I haven't just watched Holy Hell. I've watched like every cult. You'll thing, have to almost. send them like, to me. We're gonna we'll text or something. We're gonna have to <laughs> chat about this. But uh, I have to end this. This was amazing. You're amazing, Ronit. I didn't mess Thank your name you. up <laughs> at all. Just so you know. <laughs> I know. And uh, you are an awesome person. Thank you so much for being on. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was amazing to talk with you. Awesome. We'll be in touch. Okay. So let me ask you something. How do you get your news? Because I know you want to stay informed with what's going on here in the world. There's so much going on on a regular basis. And it's something that's been a problem for me personally. And I've been searching and searching and searching. And finally, I found a news source that I think all of my listeners are going to love. It's called The Donut or The Dose of News Useful Today. The founder and CEO, Peter Nowak, is a good friend of mine, and when he turned me on to it, I was just blown away. Finally, a daily news source that delivers succinct and factual news about all the world's occurrences, and it's an easy access to finding things that you just want to get information about. And it also serves up a lot of positive news stories that you won't hear anywhere else. It's your daily reminder that there is good in the world, even if it doesn't feel like it sometimes. So, get the donut. Stay informed. It's 100% free. You can unsubscribe anytime. Visit thedonut.co or text donut to 66866 to sign up today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the Rate and Review section. Thanks, everyone.